couple of weeks ago, we were at the uh, Living Stones conference, and the main speaker there was a pastor from the States called Kevin Harney. He spoke at our church about three or four years ago. And in one of the sessions he was teaching, he was uh, talking about maturing in Christ and just growing up in our, in our character and in our likeness to Jesus and in our maturity. And he talked about the time that if you've been a parent, you will remember um, of just feeding your kids and then teaching them uh, to learn to feed themselves. And he, he held up a, a little baby spoon that I don't have, we don't have any of those in our home anymore. Um, but he held up a little baby spoon that he'd managed to find from somewhere and was talking about, do you remember those times where you'd just be feeding your infant and the main thing was actually getting the food in the mouth without it being you know, spat out again and you'd do the little open the, open the tunnel for the train and make noises and everything else and, and then after a little while you'd then um, give them you know, uh, uh, the, the spoon and try and teach them to feed themselves and, and little Johnny then throws the spoon on the floor and and you just get frustrated and say, come on, Johnny, you're 17. It's time you started feeding yourself. <laughs> and, um, and we all laughed as well when he said that, just the, the imagery of that. Um, and I was thinking about that story, and so I jumped online this week and thought, oh, I'll throw up a photo of, uh, of, of like an adult who should really grow up. And I found something incredibly disturbing. This is actually the photo I wanted to show, well, I could show because there's a whole movement out there of people who call themselves adult babies. I'm serious. And some of the pictures of growing men with big pot bellies and diapers are not worth showing publicly. <laughs> but they've put them up there online. And it's this whole movement of people who basically have chosen to live life and regress back to infancy and pretend they're babies, and that's what they do. And it's just weird. <laughs> and I thought Kevin was joking in his story. But apparently for some people, that's exactly how they choose to live. And we would all look at that, I hope. I hope no one's got a life-size cot back in one of their rooms at home. Um, but we would all look at that and say that's completely bizarre. And yet, the reality is that that's how many uh, people who come to faith in Jesus continue to live their, their spiritual life. We look at that physically and say, for goodness sake, if you're an adult, be an adult. And yet very often people who become followers or disciples of Jesus are actually or can be quite comfortable living in a continual state of infancy and never actually grow up in their walk with Jesus. And that's actually where Peter is going to take us today as we continue the series we're in in the letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Christians. The key idea of the passage that we're in this morning is this. We were not born again to stay spiritual babies. We were actually born again to grow up in Christ. And that whole idea is emphasized again and again through the Bible, but is specifically emphasized in this passage we are in today. And we are at the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 and the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, paper, uh, on your phone, iPad, whatever, then I'd love you to come and look at this passage with me. We're starting in 1 Peter 1 verse 22, and we're going through to 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 3, and it's, the chapter division is in completely the wrong place. Um, the Bible is inspired, the chapter and verse numbers are not. 
They got added in uh, a few hundred years ago by some people to make it helpful to find their way around, and it is helpful, but there are times where they stuck chapter divisions in completely the wrong place, and this is one of them, because it's the chapter division's broken right into the middle of this key section in Peter's letter. Just to remind you, we're in the first part of this letter that the Apostle Peter has written, and he is writing to call the people he's writing to, which were mainly people who have come out of background, um, pagan, Gentile backgrounds and come to faith in Jesus. He's writing to them to call them to live great lives for God in a world that's really pushing them to the margins. And that's where we're going to get to in a couple more weeks, in the middle part of his letter. But before he gets to that, that main plea of his letter to really live great lives for God, he's starting off in the first part reminding them what it means to be chosen and saved and loved by God. Because we will only live great lives for God when we really comprehend what God's done for us. And so that's what he's doing in this opening section to his letter. He's reminded us of the glorious future if we have been saved through faith in Jesus that we have. He's reminded us of the distinctive holy life that we should be living that reflects this holy God who is now our Father. Um, he's reminded us of the deep cost, the great cost of what it took to actually free us and redeem us from slavery. And now the fourth thing he's coming to remind us, if we are loved and chosen and saved by God, if we are followers of Jesus, we haven't been saved simply just to stay as big fat babies as Amy Grant sung about 30 years ago. We've been saved to actually grow up in our faith. And that's what he's going to talk about in this um, second to last section of this kind of opening to his letter. And this call to maturity is a call that goes all the way through the Bible. It's repeated again and again. For example, Paul would write to one church in a place called Colossae, he is, he is, which is Jesus is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul would say something similar to the church at Ephesus. God has given leaders to the church uh, to equip the body of Christ so it would be built up, so it would reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, and we would become mature, attaining to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, we haven't been saved, we haven't been forgiven, we haven't been born again to stay as spiritual babies. The expectation is that, that God has saved us and has given us his spirit within us to transform us and change us from the inside out so that we'll grow more and more like Jesus. Now, the reality is in this life, we will never reach a perfect image of Jesus. We will never fully escape the, the sin and corruption of this world and of our own hearts and souls, but God is at work in us, and if we have been saved and chosen and forgiven by God, the expectation is that we will grow up. And that's what this passage here is all about. So let me read it, and then I want to kind of pull it apart a little bit for us. So 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. 
like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Some time back I read a, a book by a, a pastor in America by the name of James White. It's called Rethinking the Church, and he challenges some of the ideas that, that church leaders may have about the way we lead church. And I don't agree with everything in the book, but some of the stuff he writes is really interesting and challenging. And one of the chapters that really grabbed me was called Rethinking Discipleship. Discipleship is the process um, by which we help one another grow up to maturity, to to grow to maturity in Jesus. And in this chapter, um, White puts an equation together about some of the assumptions we have about how we grow in our Christian life. It looks like this. He says, often what we assume is that life change, growing towards maturity in Jesus, equals these four things. Uh, Salvation, because a dramatic change happens in us when we first come to faith in Jesus. And then he says, once we're saved, basically if there's just enough time that goes by, because no one matures in a day or two, we, we all need time to mature in Christ, but time and the will or desire to grow and change, plus individual application and responsibility, that's what helps us to to grow in in Christ. And what James White does in this chapter, which I think is is really helpful, he says, all of that is true to a point. It's not that that's false, but there's more to it than that. And he challenges some of our assumptions and says, actually, I want to rewrite the equation. And this is the way he rewrites it. He says, life change happens. We become more and more like Jesus definitely it begins with salvation and the dramatic change that happens to us when we trust in Jesus. But that is just the beginning of this process over time. And White says it's not simply a matter of time. It does take time to grow, but time by itself doesn't automatically mean you'll grow. It takes intentionality over time. And it's not simply a matter of having a will or a desire to grow. It takes training. We need to understand and grapple with biblically and practically what we're meant to do in order to grow. And while we are to take individual responsibility for how we grow, White quite rightly, I think, says, you know what, most of that growth will happen in community, in the context of relationships with one another. And I was rereading that chapter in light of uh, leading into this conference, and then as I was looking at this passage, it occurred to me that actually that's essentially the equation that Peter is going to give us in this passage. And so I want to walk through this passage of First Peter, this call for us to grow together in Christ, and I want to use these five elements that uh, James White has kind of put together in this chapter on rethinking discipleship. So what Peter does is he uh, begins with this idea of salvation. In verses 22 and 23, he gives two descriptions of the way that we have come to faith in Jesus and the beginning of life change that happens when we trust in Jesus. He talks in verse 22 about obeying the truth and in verse 23 about being born again. And what Peter's doing is he's highlighting in these two verses both the active and the passive side of of becoming Christians, coming to faith. So actively in verse 22, he says, you've purified yourselves. Whoops, I'm on the wrong page. You've purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Obeying the truth is often a a phrase that's used elsewhere in the New Testament about believing the gospel and coming to faith. And so there's an aspect of our, our conversion to Jesus, if we're followers of Christ, where we have chosen to obey the truth 
and commit our lives to Jesus, repenting of our sin and trusting in him. But what Peter also does in verse 23, it says there's a, there's a part that God plays, uh, really, that's the primary piece, where we, are, we have been born again. We don't give birth to ourselves. God gives us the new birth through the Spirit. And he's already said that in his letter back in chapter 1, verse 3, that he's given us the new birth into this living hope. He's reminded us already in verse 14 that we are now obedient children if we've trusted in Jesus. God, in verse 17, is now our Father. And so Peter has hit this again and again, but now he's coming and saying, this is the beginning of life change. When we trust in Jesus, when we choose to obey the gospel, we are born again. And so salvation kicks off this whole deal. And this actually is a dramatic change in us. Um, centuries before Peter wrote, the, the, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel made this stunning prophecy of what is called the new covenant. This is God speaking. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What Ezekiel was promising, what God was promising through Ezekiel, was that the the old covenant of law, just giving a set of rules, never transforms alone. What we need is actually a radical surgery of the inner being. And that is what Ezekiel was promising, and that is what has come through the death and resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of his spirit. God does something incredible in us through the work of the Holy Spirit so that when we come to Jesus, we actually have a part of the the new creation. Something new happens in us. God begins radical surgery of the inner person. It's so radical that Paul uses this way of describing it in Ephesians, that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace we've been saved. And so that's where Peter's beginning. We have been radically born again. And life change begins the moment we trust in Jesus. That's the beginning of it. That's not the end point. There's more. But that is absolutely the start. And it's really important to understand that Because if you haven't trusted in Jesus, if you're sitting here at Botany or you're sitting at Hastings watching this or you're listening to this on a podcast or whatever, it's really important to understand if you're checking out the Christian faith, you can get some change in life. You can maybe work on a problem with alcohol or you can work yourself out of debt and get into a better space financially. But the kind of radical life change of becoming more like Jesus will never happen without the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Unless we are born again, unless we commit our lives to Jesus and trust in him, life change will not happen. So that is the beginning point. And that's what Peter highlights here. Then what Peter does, though, is he builds on this with these three other concepts. And what you'll notice in the rest of this passage is he gives three core commands. In verse 22 of chapter 1 and then in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. And those three core commands fit these other three elements of what what we need to really grow uh, in life and become more and more like Jesus. So the first command is in verse 22, where he says, love one another deeply from the heart. This is the idea of community. And what Peter is saying is that we actually need each other if we are ever really going to grow and transform in life. 
It's possible that sitting in a room somewhere and singing Kumbaya on your own, you might become a little bit more like Jesus, but actually we become more like Jesus when we journey through life together. That's what Peter's saying, and that's why he commands the people he's writing to to love one another deeply from the heart. We grow in relationship to others. The writer to the Hebrews, another letter in the New Testament, put it this way. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer begins with our vertical relationship with God, hold on to this faith and this hope we profess, but then he very quickly moves to the horizontal relationships. We need each other. We need to spur each other on. We need to encourage one another. And that only happens in relationship and community together. At this uh, conference we were at a couple of weeks ago for Living Stones, one of the other speakers was a, a, an Australian pastor, Timon Benson, who's also uh, preached at our church a couple of years ago. And Timon started talking about the twosies. And I was like, what on earth are you talking about? And he said, there's a phenomenon happening now in churches in Australia and in America. And he said, I don't know if it's happening in New Zealand. And then he described it. And all these pastors and church leaders in the room start going, oh, yeah, that's exactly what's happening here. Twosies are people who end up going to church on average two Sundays a month. Because of the busyness of life and the consumer world that we live in, that is now the average time of attendance. And what Timon said was, our deep problem is that the world has changed in the last 20 or 30 years. So that many of the people sitting in church today are twosies or onesies. And you end up at church once or twice. And because our lives are so busy, more and more of us are pulling back from any life group or community group or any small group experience as well. So the total sum of community, Christian community we get is sitting in church once or twice a month here. And he quite rightly pointed out, that's just not enough to change and grow. Not only do we need a recommitment to what the writer to the Hebrews talks about, not giving up meeting together, but doing it all the more and encouraging. So not only do we need a recommitment to that in terms of Sunday gathering to sit under the word and to worship together and realign our hearts week by week, but actually we need to recommit to the deeper work, too, of being in small groups together. I have been in, in some kind of community group or small group pretty much my whole Christian life. And I don't know how you grow. I don't know how you experience life change without being in a small room where you can spur one another on and encourage one another and love one another. The one another commands are littered all the way through the New Testament. And the, the, the reality is we can't do most of the one another commands in a large room like this on a Sunday morning. What it takes is actually sitting in small gatherings together because the way we grow is by receiving the encouragement and the spurring on and the love from people. And we also grow as we give out and love and encourage and spur on one another. And that's what Peter's talking about. Love one another deeply, he says, not sure I entirely like the deeply translation the NIV's used. It would be better to say love one another consistently. In other words, keep on loving one another from the heart. That's what he's going after. You know, it doesn't matter if you've been part of community groups for 20 years, but you kind of had enough of them now and drop out. No, 
What Peter's calling for is a consistent, ongoing commitment to love each other because that's how we will grow. That's the first command. Love one another deeply. Second command then is in verse 1 of chapter 2. Again, the chapter division shouldn't be there. But he says, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, every kind. It's, it's a call to intentional living, to intentionally deal with the stuff that trips us up and stops us becoming like Jesus. Intentionality is something that I have been really challenged about personally in the last two or three months as I've been thinking about some of the topics we were looking at at conference. Um, the idea that we so easily slip our lives into cruise control rather than being intentional about what we're doing in life. And what Peter is calling for here is intentionality in his readers. He's calling them to be intentional about identifying sin in their lives, to be in intentional about looking at their lives and finding the areas of weakness they need to grow in, and then being intentional about getting rid of that, of dealing with the sin and the junk and the mess. And again, this is repeated time and time and time again through the New Testament. This is what Paul writes again to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 3. Paul wrote, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must get rid of yourselves of all of these things, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. In other words, what Paul says is, you used to live that kind of life. And while radical change has happened as you've trusted in Jesus, some of the stuff can still linger on in our lives because we're not perfect. You know, we're, we're in a process. But what Paul is calling for is what Peter's calling for is intentionality. To look at our lives and go, wait a minute, what stuff that I used to do? What stuff from my old life, from my past, am I still doing? I've got to get rid of that stuff. And what I like about this particular passage is he starts off talking about some of the, what we might say is the big stuff, greed, lust, evil desire, sexual immorality. But then later, Paul comes down to the bottom here and he goes after some of the other stuff, anger, malice, slander, filthy language. I've got a book on my shelf in my library by an author I love called Jerry Bridges. It's called Respectable Sins. And he talks in this book about how there's these, like, these, this, this A-list of sins that we all know we really shouldn't do as, as followers of Jesus. And, and we're probably pretty good when we compare ourselves to the A-list of the biggies. But then what Jerry Bridges says is, you know, but well, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that we put on a different list and kind of go, oh, well, maybe that's not so big a deal. And it's almost like that's what Paul's recognizing here. And he's going after some of the, the B-list stuff too. And saying, you know, it's not acceptable for you to get angry like that at someone else. It's actually not okay for you to slander and gossip, maybe the way you still do. All of that stuff we need to be intentional about getting rid of in our lives. Paul goes on at the end of this, this paragraph in Colossians 3 to say, do not lie to each other, which is another one of those kind of respectable sins that isn't so bad. It says, don't lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. 
the, the metaphor he's using is, is changing your clothes. The wording he uses to taken off and to put on is actually words elsewhere in the New Testament used literally of taking off a cloak or taking off a garment and putting, putting it back on again. And he said, what we should be doing, we've changed the uniform we wear. We used to be in, 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 the, in the uniform of the world. We used to live in, in this world and its existence and everything else, but we've, we've come to trust in Jesus and we've now joined his team and we now wear the uniform of Team Jesus. But often what we do is we're still wearing the coat from the other team. And so what he's saying is we need to take that coat off. Whatever that practice is in our life that now doesn't fit with who we fundamentally are in Jesus, whether that's lying or slandering or gossiping or one of those bigger sins, actually, we need to stop doing that. We need to take that off. And instead, we need to put on an understanding of the new self, of I am who you say I am, God, and put on that. And interestingly enough, that's the same word that Peter will use here in chapter 2, verse 1 where the NIVs translate it, rid yourselves, literally it actually is, take off from yourselves all malice, all slander, all hypocrisy. It's that same image. Take off those garments, take off those practices that don't fit with who you fundamentally are now, with the, the uniform of Team Jesus that you're now wearing. Any kind of practices that don't actually fit with who you now are in Christ. Peter says we have to be intentional. Intentional about identifying those in our lives and then being intentional about dealing with them. The third command then comes in the next verse, chapter 2, verse 2. Crave pure spiritual milk. Crave pure spiritual milk. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, spiritual milk is used to define just basic doctrine and base, the basics of the Christian life that we should need for a, a season and then we grow up. That's the way the, the Hebrews will use it and 2 Corinthians will use it. Um, so it almost has a negative connotation that you, know, you should need milk for a season, but then you should move to what's you know, solid food is the metaphor. But it's slightly different here in Peter. Peter's not using pure spiritual milk in this passage as something negative that we should leave behind. Here, it's something we should always be continually taking in. So what is it? What is pure spiritual milk? Well, in the context of this passage in First Peter, almost all commentators take us back to those last couple of verses of chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. The pure spiritual milk we should crave is the word of God. Because Peter, back here, when he describes how we were born again in verse 23, he says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And then he quotes from Isaiah 40 in the Old Testament. All people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And that is the word that was preached to you, Peter says. This is the third time, I think, in this letter so far that Peter has used this idea of imperishable and perishable. Earlier in verse 4 of chapter 1, it described our inheritance in heaven as imperishable. And then when he described how Jesus has redeemed us, has freed us from slavery, he said it wasn't with perishable money, but through the precious blood of Jesus. 
And this imperishable, perishable contrast is contrasted between what is eternal and and lasting between what is temporary. And what he's highlighting here is that when we were born again by the Spirit of God as we placed our faith in Jesus, we were responding to the eternal and unchanging Word of God. We were born again through the Word. That's what he's saying. And so then when he comes a couple of verses later and says, crave pure spiritual milk, he's calling us to continue to crave for the same word through which we were saved when we heard the good news of the gospel. It's a call to continually come back to the Bible as God's word to us, the inspired and inerrant word of God. That's the third key part of how we grow in our walk with him. And the contrast here in that quote from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament is between the eternal and lasting word of God compared to how transitory and mortal we are. That we're here one day and gone tomorrow. We're just not around that long. But the word of God is, and we need to be craving and going after the word of God. This last week I came across a a superb comment uh, from John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement. Reflecting on on this idea, uh, he wrote this, I am a creature of the day. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God. In other words, he's saying, I'm just mortal. I'm here one day and gone the next. But he said, he wrote, I want to know one thing. I want to know the way to heaven. As a mortal being, I want to know how to secure immortality. And then he said this, God himself has taught us the way. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Let me be a man of one book. Man, I was moved by that. Because Wesley is exemplifying exactly what Peter is calling for. And out of All of the English translations that I quickly scanned this week, I particularly love the NIV right here. Because it chose the verb crave. Crave pure spiritual milk. Crave the word of God. Deeply hunger and thirst for the scriptures. Because it's so integral to how we grow. This is the way that whoever it is that wrote Psalm 119 put it. Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's actually a beautiful acrostic psalm. 22 sections, each one represented by a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each section, all of the eight verses in each section begin with that letter in the original Hebrew text. It is one of the most exquisitely written pieces of the Word of God, and its subject is the Word of God. And at this point in the second stanza, the psalmist says, With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. But here's my question. Is that how we crave the word of God? Is that our attitude to the scriptures? Because what Peter is saying is if we really want to grow in our lives, it needs us to have a radical life change through coming to faith in Jesus and the beginning of the transformational work of the Spirit. 
that will continue. And it also needs the work of the community of God as we love one another deeply. And it needs this intentionality in life as we walk this walk with Jesus. But it also needs the word of God. And he calls us to crave for that and hunger for that and yearn for that. And the result of all of that is life change. Because that's where he ends up at the end of this passage. Crave pure spiritual milk, he says, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Jesus didn't redeem us and save us and choose us and forgive us so that we would stay as adult babies. It is just weird. It's weird in the real world and it's weird in the, the real spiritual world. That's, that was never the intention. The intention is that we would grow up through intentionality and biblical training, unity, as those who have been redeemed and saved by Jesus. We were not born again to stay as babies. We were born again to grow up. So what does that look like in real life? Well, I've actually asked my wonderful mother-in-law, Elaine Foreman, to join me. Because I wanted to get someone up here who has lived this kind of life and this kind of pilgrimage over a long period of time. And I couldn't think of anyone better than this awesome woman. I don't think I've ever told a mother-in-law joke in my life. He's my favourite son-in-law. <laughs> so, when I thought about these kind of ideas of growing to maturity and, and the, the role of the Word of God and community and intentionality, I did honestly think of Elaine because I think her life has exemplified that. And so, I wanted her to share a little bit of her story with you. So, can you... Maybe just give us your story would be the place to begin. Okay. Well, I was um, raised in a wonderful Christian home down the Waikato on a farm and came to know the Lord when I was 11 years old. And I came to know the Lord really out of fear because in those days, um, the preachers used to always talk about the Lord's coming back soon. If, you're not, if you haven't accepted the Christ as your saviour, you will be left behind. And so I thought, I don't want to be left behind. So, and often I'd wake up in the middle of the night and I'd go and look to see if my parents were still in bed because I thought, has the Lord come? So I came to know the Lord and slightly because I was fearful of being left behind, but he's a good God and I love him. And, um, and then I, in my early 20s, I went to Auckland to a Bible school and that's where I met Roland, but he wasn't at the Bible school because it was an all-girls one. Uh, but I was rooming with his sister, and um, so the rest is history, and we got married. Um, when our third, we had three children under three, and when our third child, Craig, was born, when he was three months old, he got a very, a very severe case of pneumococcal meningitis, and so he ended up in hospital. And when he was in hospital, the doctors just said to us, it's very, very severe. Um, I don't think he will pull through. But if he does, he's going to be severely brain damaged. Well, you can imagine as parents, when we found that, we thought, Lord, do you mean you're going to give us you know, a child back or you're taking him? But anyway, he came through those three days and uh, they went from strength to strength and he seemed quite normal. And the doctor said, we can't understand this. It was so severe. And we just said, well, we were praying and all our friends around New Zealand were praying. And we believe God performed a miracle. And they just 
give a smile and say, oh, yes, okay. Anyway, we took him home and we really loved him and, and I would be watching every little milestone thinking, is he doing the same as the other two did at their, you know, his age? But at two and a half months, God took him in a cot death and that was really devastating because here the God had given him back to us and when we got home the night we brought him home from hospital, I remember Roland and I kneeling by our bed praying and saying, Lord, we all hold him in an open hand just for you to do whatever you want with his life. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes when I'm praying, I have some thought in my mind as to what you know, God's going to do. But anyway, God decided he wanted to take him home. And so he took him home. And you know, someone said to me, well, why didn't God take him home when he was so sick? But I know in my own heart, I wasn't ready to release him when he was so sick. But God had brought us through that journey and giving him back to us that I was... It was devastating, but I was ready to release him. And so when we thought about that, we thought about the brevity of life. I mean, God gives and God takes. And um, we thought, well, what are we doing with our lives? Um, Roland was in teaching and going up the career ladder, and we were like other young couples, you know, amassing this world's goods. And we thought, do we want to do that? No. We want to be sold out for Lord. And so we really prayed about it, and it ended up we went down to Te Aumutu and we started GLOW, which is Gospel Literature Outreach, a training centre, and down there, and we were training young people and um, sharing their faith door-to-door and going on mission trips and things like that. And then Roland decided, well, it would be really good to do this in a church situation, and there was a church that closed down in Christchurch in Hornby, a brethren church, and so Jill and Trevor Patterson and ourselves went down there and restarted that church and had a training centre in it. So that was going really well. And, um, but then we had another real low in our lives. Um, Roland was going to be speaking at a uh, Christmas camp down at Queenstown. And we were driving down about 11.30 at night. And we went through the bridge at Cromwell, um, straight through the bridge and turned around and landed in the river below. Well, really, we should have been killed because normally your car flips over on the roof, but this just, our car just circled around. And I honestly felt as though the Lord was holding that car up to bring it down. It really felt the Lord was protecting us. And, um, and so he ended up in the hospital because he had broken ribs and punctured lung and all sorts of things. I just had a bruise on my elbow. Um, David, our 12-year-old, was in the back. He had a cut and his friend got concussed because he'd gone up and broken his jaw. But anyway, we, um, from that, the elders said, well, you need a sabbatical. So um, Roland decided, we decided to go to Dallas Seminary for a year, which ended up two years because Roland decided to do a doctoral from Denver. And, um, and so we did that. And at that time, it was a growth period for me because I could audit classes at seminary as well as go to some with Roland. And then we came back to Christchurch, and he started up Build Ministries. You can see his thing here. He's keeping starting things up. Um, Biblical Institute of Leadership Development and training young people and older ones. And we would meet for a one-day seminar. Then they would have a few weeks um, study and what have you. And then we'd meet for an integrator seminar at the end. So... And then we moved from Christchurch to Hamilton and planted a new church with two other couples. Um, and then uh, while we were there, after about six years, Roland got burnout. Um, so we stepped back from that, and he did writing of curriculum for a church in the States. 
And then um, we came back. He said he felt that he's more of a teacher and a mentor rather than sitting behind a computer all the time writing things. So we came back and he started Living Stones, and that was empowering pastors to lead in their churches. But then last year he gave that over to all the young guns like Brad and them, so the young pastors. So he's finished that. But I knew that he couldn't sit and do nothing. Um, and so the Lord just directed us into going BSL, um, Barnabas School of Leadership, which means going to Myanmar, Ghana and Nepal twice a year and empowering pastors there, uh, resourcing them so that they can go and teach their people over there because they can't get to seminaries. So when Brad asked me to give this life story and I was thinking about it, I thought, wow, we've been here, there and everywhere. But you don't realise that at the time. You just keep walking with the Lord and seeking to do what he wants. But then it's 50 years married this year, so That's awesome, pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that stands out to me as I hear Elaine's story that wasn't part of the equation and isn't part of what Peter's talking about in this passage is the role of hardship and suffering and helping us become more like Jesus. Mm. And I, I think in some ways that's intentional because the rest of these things are things we have to go after. I don't think we meant to go after hardship or, or you know, pursue suffering, but there's no doubt that the suffering and the difficult mm. pieces of your journey has mm. been really instrumental, I think, in shaping well, who I you think and so. Roland and are. I was thinking, it's a shame that the Lord has to do drastic things in our lives to get our attention. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's what it seemed like. Yeah. But the cool thing in your story is yeah. I think each time that happened, yeah. he did get your attention and you guys mm. responded to mm. that really well. So, mm. um, These three pieces that we've talked about today, yeah. intentionality, community, biblical training, how have those been integrated into your Right. Well, I've um, led a number of ladies' Bible studies over the years and have done it for a long time. And about um, two years ago, I think it might have been, I had a ladies' Bible study at my home and decided I needed a break. And so Roland and I decided then well, we would... Um, and, and in leading those studies, the thing that I've found for me is that I'm intentionally studying the Word of God. And I need to be in a community of others doing that because what I realised, I thought, well, okay, I'm not doing these studies now. I've got books up in my room. I can get those down once a week, you know, sit down and do it. But did I do it? No. And um, because I'm on my own and I can procrastinate and I can think, well, there's other things that I want to do. And so we had this, we've got Araha going on a Sunday and it's brilliant. We've got a wonderful group of people, young and old, and we have fellowship and fun and prayer for each other and we laugh and we cry and it's really good. And we discuss the um, Sunday sermon. But deep down, I still wanted to do a bit of study. So this year, I went to BSF, which is Bible Study Fellowship. And um, I realized then that what I was missing out on is when I'm accountable to something, I do it. I mean, I know that I'm going to be going to a study. So I'm studying and I'm growing and being in a community. And I just would like to emphasize that community is really good. You learn from the other woman in the group. And hopefully they're learning from you. You're praying together. You're sharing your story and, um, and, and things that are happening in your life. And they're praying for you. And when you meet, they're asking you, how did you get on with that? You know, what's the Lord doing? And 
I would really say that being in the Word, it makes you grow. And then when you're in a community and you're sharing, that's the best thing because I can't do it on my own. I just put it off and I just decide, oh, well, yeah, I can do it another day, but never do. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's just, I think, the latest example of, I mean, I've been in the family almost 25 <laughs> years. Yeah. And um, I think that's what I've seen every part of the journey yeah. that you're in. Yeah. You have always been intentionally looking for ways yeah. to connect in community. And in the yeah. So mm. thank you. Thank you. You're awesome. Can we thank say you. thanks to Elaine? <laughs> our, uh, our time's almost gone. We started late because of a couple of technical issues, and we meant to finish with a couple of worship songs, but I'm actually going to pull the plug on that, team, because we're out of time. But I do want to finish with just a couple of, of reflection questions. As we think about this, uh, this equation and these key elements in helping us to grow and become more like Jesus, the first one was salvation. And I just want to reiterate again what I said um, at that, that point, that actually when we come to faith in Jesus, radical change happens in us. And if you aren't a follower of Jesus, if you're here just maybe checking this out or sitting in Hastings or listening to this somewhere on the, over the internet, and you've never actually trusted your life to Christ, you need to understand you may be able to make some changes here and there superficially to your life, but significant and deep life change of the heart only happens when you become a follower of Jesus and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. And so if you've never taken that step, can I just invite you to pause at this moment and just quietly in your heart acknowledge and repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. For those of us who have done that, I want to finish by asking you three reflection questions based on those three other elements alongside salvation today. First question is this. To what extent am I intentional about my spiritual growth versus just cruising in my walk with Jesus? I want to invite you to just take a few seconds and, and think about that on a spectrum. To what extent am I fully intentional about my spiritual growth through to Justin Cruz's control. Where are you on that spectrum at the moment? Second question. To what extent am I craving the wisdom and training of God's word versus essentially ignoring the Bible in my daily life? Where are you on that spectrum at the moment? Third question, to what extent am I growing in community with other believers versus living in isolation? Where are you on that? I want to leave these questions up for just a few seconds. And I simply want to invite you to have a moment with God in prayer as we finish up this morning. And whichever one of those you're feeling most challenged in about where you are in the spectrum, I just want to invite you to bring I'll let it go.
Lord Jesus, we want to say thank you for the incredible salvation that you've given to each of us who are your followers. Thank you that you have saved us and freed us entirely by your grace. We never deserved that. We could never have earned it. We can never repay you. And yet in your grace and love, you've chosen us and forgiven us, set us free, forgiven. We're just in awe of you. And Lord, the reminder today from Peter that we were not just saved to sit aground and be fat babies, but we were saved so that we would grow up is a real challenge. Holy Spirit, you have just reminded each of us about these key areas and perhaps challenged us about one of those places where we are not being as intentional or not being as committed to your word or not being in community as much as we need to. I just pray in the quietness of this moment you would help us to resolve to change that. Today, tomorrow, this coming week, this coming month, not because it earns us anything with you or makes us safer with you or anything, but because we are so in awe of your grace and what you've done that we long to grow and become more. We commit ourselves to you today in your name. Amen. Guys, that's our service. Thank you for being with us. Um, please stay for tea and coffee at the back there. Have a chat to Rowley and Gail if you'd like to find out even more about In the Gap. If you'd like some prayer as well, some of the leaders will be at the front here. Have a great week.